welcome to Innovate Podcast, giving voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders and organizations within the nonprofit, education, culture, philanthropy, and social entrepreneurship sectors. Here's your host, Robert Rim. Habitat for Humanity is the global Christian housing organization that's directly helped more than 35 million people construct, rehabilitate, or preserve their homes, collaborating in communities throughout America and in more than 70 countries. Habitat homeowners help build their own homes alongside volunteers and pay an affordable mortgage. Through their 2020 strategic plan, Habitat has served more people than ever before. Jonathan Reckford began his journey as Chief Executive Officer of Habitat for Humanity International in 2005, drawing upon his decades of experience, ranging from Wall Street to a local church, Habitat has grown from serving 125,000 individuals a year to helping more than 7 million people last year achieve the strength, stability, and independence they need to build a better life for themselves and their families. Jonathan was deeply influenced by his parents, who were active in the civil rights movement, and by his grandmother, U.S. Congresswoman Millicent Fenwick, widely known for her commitment to justice. Jonathan seeks to follow in their footsteps by leading Habitat's efforts to draw nearer to a world where everyone has a decent place to live. His path to Habitat was neither immediate nor direct, with stops at Goldman Sachs, the 1988 Olympic Games in South Korea, at Marriott, the Walt Disney Company, Musicland, Best Buy, and Christ Presbyterian Church in Minnesota. Each position prepared him to lead Habitat with a passion for the mission, tireless commitment to the work, and bold vision for the future. Jonathan holds an MBA from Stanford and a BA in political science from the University of North Carolina, where he was a Moorhead scholar. He and his wife, Ashley, have three children and live in Atlanta. Jonathan, welcome to Innovate Podcast. Thanks so much, Robert. Great to be with you. You've had quite a diverse background. What initially drove you to seek the position at Habitat you've held since 2005? Well, Robert, thank you first for that gracious introduction. In some ways, the seeds of what you described were, I think, very much the beginning. My grandmother was a big force in my life. And I think almost every time I saw her when I was young, both summer and Christmas, she would both quote her favorite life verse from the Bible, Micah 6, 8. He showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then she would ask her grandchildren what we were going to do to be useful. And I like that image of useful. So we were supposed to find our place to contribute. And for me, I didn't really know how to do that. I was give you the the sort of white space pieces of the story. Came out of college thinking I was going to go to law school and go into politics like her and suddenly realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I had to come up with plan B, naively talked my way, despite being a poli sci major, into this job at Goldman Sachs and suffered mildly for the hubris that I could learn finance faster uh, than other people could learn to communicate. Learned a lot, but also learned that really wasn't, you know, that wasn't the right fit for me. And and my first big inflection point was that year in Korea working with the Olympics, where I had enough distance and space to really think about the kind of life I wanted and went back to grad school. Back then, only Stanford and Yale were focused on the need for professional management of nonprofits. And so wanted to learn more about business and then spent that first half of my career in the business world with the idea of gaining the skills, hopefully to eventually bring to a mission like Habitat. And the next surprise was when I left the business world after the company I was helping lead was acquired, I spent some time in India 
and was really had my heart broken again by the conditions, especially in rural India, that the families we were working alongside were, were facing, where the Bungi were among even the Dalits in India, truly the least of the least, where they were only allowed to hand clean latrines and clean up dead animals and weren't allowed to live in community. And at that time, about half the children were dying before their 13th birthday because of the conditions in which they lived. And that just broke my heart all over again. And I came back from that experience more focused than ever on finding you know, some way to work towards poverty alleviation in the world. It was bumpy and it was a slow process, and it led very unexpectedly to being asked to help lead my local church, a large Presbyterian church that was very active in poverty, both locally and globally. And I didn't expect to do that. But looking back, it was just the perfect complement to my corporate background to be ready when I wasn't looking for Habitat for Humanity when it came along. And Habitat, if I could have picked one job that combined all the things I was passionate about, it would have been Habitat, which was global, focused on serving those most in need and doing that in a way that was putting God's love into action in a very practical and tangible way. And even for my um, wonderful Georgian wife, the chance to move back to the South. But it has been an incredible blessing. And as you can tell, I could never hold a job, but this is now 15 years and there's nothing else I'd rather do. Yeah. And you mentioned the difficulties you went through along the way. Uh, looking back, Jonathan, you wouldn't give up those difficulties, would you? That kind of suffering you went through uh, because it gave you the perspective you have now. You know, I think it's so important often, and for me, it's in a faith lens, but I think it's true for many people. Often it's hard to see in the moment all of the, uh, the sort of have a long-term perspective. And I look back and every one of those roles and the both the successes and the failures were incredibly valuable. And I look back and having the combination of retail experience, you know, managing 1,400 stores was incredibly valuable for then coming to Habitat where we have over 1,100 U.S. affiliates in 70 countries. I think about what I learned about customer service at Disney. I learned about consistent delivery of service at Marriott. So I, I think all of the pieces have been incredibly valuable. And in, in serving in the church, I learned so much about volunteers and how do you motivate and serve and engage volunteers. So I wouldn't give up any of it. And I think it is often, I think all of those were important in my preparation. And I think often, you know, the hard times, as much as we'd love to avoid them, are the times you often learn the most. No question about it. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of Habitat's founders, Millard and Linda Fuller. They started in a small Christian community in Georgia, then expanded to Africa, and from there the current organization was born. Tell us about Habitat's growth from those early days, uh, its reach and impact through the years. It was Millard Fuller uh, and his wife. Millard was an early social entrepreneur and an incredible, I would call, social evangelist. And he and his wife first took this down to what was then Zaire, now Congo, and tested out as missionaries for a few years and then came back and formally created Habitat for Humanity in 1976. And he was the kind of person that if he would go to a country or be, if you sat next to him on an airplane, by the time you got off the plane, you'd want to go start Habitat in your local community. And so it went <laughs> very broad and very wide. I think we peaked at 103 countries. And then the next evolution, I think, for us was how do we go deeper and increase our impact? And the basic principles have held remarkably true over all this time. I think part of what started the growth or the next growth phase, and Habitat had been growing for a long time, is in 05 and 06, we calculated how long it would take at our current quite rapid growth rate 
two poverty housing problem in the world. And it was over a thousand years. And we thought, well, that's not acceptable. So I think one of the framing changes was moving from the question of how many houses can we build, which was a really good question, to what would it take to meaningfully reduce the housing deficit in all the geographies that we serve, which is a much more frightening question. And that really forced us into thinking more holistically about impacting the market and how do we start changing market conditions so that low-income families can access and improve their own housing in addition to the traditional work that we continue to do more of. And so we want to build more than ever, but also that took us into advocacy work, particularly property rights internationally and making sure that people have the right to stay on their property, which for women and marginalized groups was really important. And we see it here in the U.S., a lot of zoning and traditional housing regulations were done in ways that weren't fair. I think housing is one of the starkest example of systemic racism in the United States, where the federal government formally discriminated in terms of housing and in lending. That was where the term redlining came from. So I think housing policy is critically important to the piece, but also access to finance. And we became a global leader in housing microfinance and then starting to do our work, not in isolation, but in partnership so that we are part of a broader sense of transformation. And so we're trying to do everywhere in the world, be a part of neighborhood revitalization or community development in a way that all the the pieces that are necessary are, are available to families. So our vision will be is it has to start with the community itself and the, and the vision that the members of the community have. And then how can we come alongside? And we believe housing is incredibly important, but certainly not sufficient. But it's almost a prerequisite. So families need housing, they need food, and they need health care, they need education so that they can then lift themselves up. And so we believe uh, our role is housing, but we want to do that in the context of trying to create real community transformation wherever we serve. It's great to hear about such community transformation. And there are literally no caveats regarding faith, religion, or proselytizing within Habitat for Humanity. That's an important aspect to how you view your work, isn't it? It's critically important. We are motivated by our faith. Habitat was founded out of a small Christian, uh, almost commune or farm in South Georgia. And that it continues to be our motivation. But the center of our mission is bringing people together. And so we have always joyfully welcomed anyone who wanted to be part of our mission. Your question is so important because it would be anathema to us that we would discriminate against someone uh, because of faith. Or, or if, for those who don't know, literally what proselytizing means is the idea that we would give somebody a house or let them buy a house if they converted to Christianity. And that goes against everything we believe. So anyone who meets our basic criteria, which is that they are too low income to be able to get a conventional bank loan, that they are willing to partner with us, which means putting in what we call sweat equity and helping build their home and neighbor's homes, and then showing the willingness to pay back an affordable loan or mortgage so that we can recycle those payments into the community and help other families have their opportunity. But we would never condition any of that on faith. And how does the actual process work? Uh, how a family in need ends up with a home built by themselves, along with Habitat's volunteers? In our traditional model, and I think these principles have been so powerful and effective and really explain in many ways why Habitat has sustained, is that idea of partnership. And in fact, the, the pastor who came up with the idea of Habitat and founded this Koinonia farm, which was an interracial farm founded in 1942 in South Georgia, uh, his name was Clarence Jordan. And in this letter in the 60s, when the farm had been boycotted and harassed and was failing, he pulled a group together that included Millard Fuller to really pray about what might be next. And out of that, they came up with this idea of a fund for humanity. 
And those core principles were deeply embedded in that first fund. And he had a quote that I just love. And he said, what the poor need is not charity, but capital, not caseworkers, but co-workers. And what the rich need is a wise, honorable, and just way of divesting themselves of their overabundance. And he had this vision that everyone had something to give and everyone had something to gain when they work together. So that ethos of partnership is deeply embedded and dignity with the idea that the families are not being given the house, they're buying the house, but they have the chance because so many low-income families can't save up a down payment. Instead of a cash down payment, they would put in the sweat equity. The community would come along around them and help them build the home, which built relationship. And then they would then pay it forward by paying back the loan so that other families would have an opportunity to purchase a home as well. And one of the beautiful aspects of that is I think I was first drawn as a volunteer long before. I think back when I was working at Disney was my first Habitat volunteer experience. And I was so struck personally when I came out for the first time. I'd heard of Habitat. But it was that feeling of community. And I brought my team out from Disney and we spent the day putting siding on a house alongside the the home buyer and one of her children. And it was such a powerful sense of community. And I think that's what keeps drawing people back. So I'm amazed how often volunteers thank me for the chance to come out, you know, and do hot, sweaty, hard work. But I think the reason it's so powerful is they get to experience the kind of community we all want to be a part of, but sometimes too rarely see these days. And given that crucial community perspective, are you seeing more and more organizations, uh, nonprofits adopt that kind of perspective? We certainly want to. We freely give away our methodology. I do think there is a strong sense of nonprofit community. There's a good trend towards professionalization, but there's also a recognition that any good solutions have to be done in partnership with the community. And I think a growing recognition that they need to be done more broadly in partnership. So my view is that complex issues can only be solved with a multi-sector approach. And we certainly don't have all the answers, but to do something like housing, you have to have the public sector, the private sector, and social sector working together on these issues. And my hope is we can do more on the community building side. I think COVID has been a tragedy on so many dimensions, including pushing people apart. But I hope coming out of COVID, people will actually have an increased appreciation both for how critically important it is to have housing, but also how critical community is. And we still have seen, even in the midst of the pandemic, amazing examples of of selfless service and and community. Yeah, COVID-19 has hit all sectors hard obviously including construction, which was shut down in many places. What's the extent of how the pandemic has affected your work? It's impacted us as it has everyone else. We have long responded to natural and man-made disasters, but we've never faced one that hit the whole world at the same time. You know, usually one country or one city gets hit and the surrounding areas can come and help. This is unique for us where it impacted all of our programs across the world. I've been amazed by the resilience of our leadership around the world. And people have found ways to adapt, but it has been uneven. Some countries have been full lockdown where we could do very little. Many places made construction essential and essential activity. So we could still do the work, but we couldn't do it with volunteers as much. So we we completed a lot of our projects with staff and contractors and those steady weekly, almost staff kind of volunteers who are well-trained and where we could do it safely. But we haven't been able to bring the big groups of unskilled volunteers out. But we just released a couple of weeks ago our annual report for our fiscal year that ended in July. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we were able to still help almost 6 million people around the world from the year of last July to this June, even with the fourth quarter heavily impacted by COVID. 
but it has certainly had a huge impact on us. I'm also grateful that so many donors have stayed with us and recognized. And I do think we've had this bifurcated impact of COVID where for those of us who are knowledge workers and have internet connections and safe places to live, our life has been inconvenienced, but so many things can keep continuing. I think for people who can't eat if they don't work around the world, for service frontline workers or people who don't have good housing, this has been a catastrophe. And I hope and I've certainly seen empathy out of that for recognition that that we've got to find ways to, to help those or prioritize serving those who have been most impacted by this. And certainly for so many people around the world, as you mentioned, that's the reality. Tell us more about Habitat's processes and focus. So the family would qualify and we try to treat them the way a bank would. We're a very friendly mortgage lender, but the process is they would apply. And then the hardest part for us is the local decisions are made by volunteer family selection groups in the community with the our local Habitat. And they would, among all the families who've applied, then they would then prioritize by greatest need among the families who have qualified, which means they're willing to put in the sweat equity. They show they could pay back. They have clean credit. They show they could pay back this affordable mortgage. And then they go through that process. They also typically would take classes in home maintenance and in financial management. So by the time they actually purchase the home, they're really well prepared. And that's one of the reasons our foreclosure rates have been so low over time is even though these are technically sub-subprime borrowers, they're really well prepared and motivated. And by the time they've done all that work and they've actually literally helped build their home, they're really well prepared to take care of that home. And they're so proud of it. And what we see is they then help not only are they more successful individually, but they become anchors of strengthening their community as well. And I think that's really important. And then the next step for us is as those families come in, we want to make them part of, of these bigger efforts, as I mentioned. So we're doing neighborhood revitalization work with broader partnerships. And then there are other elements for Habitat that are less, I think your listeners might not know that we also do. And that would be some of the market development work I talked about. We have our Terwilliger Center for Innovation and Shelter, where we're focusing on, we actually have a shelter venture investment fund, and we are investing with and helping to support and raise up entrepreneurs around the world who are coming up with better building projects products for the poor or other initiatives to increase skilled labor so people have access or to support advocates. So that's been a big focus as well. And then there's some specific pieces, especially in this environment that are more needed than ever, where we're focused on aging in place and particularly helping seniors who have housing but need adaptations to be able to safely remain in their homes. And we've had a higher focus during COVID on both doing critical home repairs and small upgrades that make homes healthier. And then outside the U.S. in particular focused on water and sanitation and hygiene, because if we're in a pandemic and the country says we want you to shelter in place, but you don't have a safe place in which to shelter, nor do you have access to uh, places to wash your hands or safe fresh water and, and sanitation, it becomes almost impossible to maintain a healthy environment. So we have tried to increase our efforts to support healthy housing. And all of these varied efforts directly feed into one another, don't they? They do very much interconnected because we're looking at the whole housing ecosystem and it would be very good if we just built a house that's that's good in itself. But if we can build houses in the right locations in healthy communities, then we see a ripple and amplification of that impact in, in a much bigger way. And if we can set the conditions and and in a way, Habitat was designed to be a demonstration model, not to be the answer, but to show what's possible. And so we want others to actually take the principles and replicate and scale it in a way that 
you know, we really get closer to that, our vision that everyone should have a safe, decent, affordable place to live. And it's one thing to help build and acquire a home, but it can certainly be expensive to maintain. So once people move in, what does Habitat do to make sure these homes are in fact properly sustained? Uh, it's a great question, Robert. We want to treat these families as true partners in dignity. So they are responsible. They're responsible for paying their mortgage and they're responsible for taking care of their homes. As we mentioned, they've taken uh, classes in how to maintain their homes and they've actually seen how it's built. So they're well prepared. But we do offer, along with critical home repair programs in the communities, those are available as well to the families if they need small repairs or over the longer term as they need adjustments. And so often our habitat programs will stay in engage with the families and they have the ability often to purchase those at very, we are a trusted partner then to, uh, to make sure they have access to, to good repair services to keep things up because it is important. We want to make sure that this is a long-term intergenerational asset for the family, which is so important, but also that it continues to be a safe and healthy place for their family. And the advocacy is clearly a crucial aspect. I'm thinking of former president Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind, for over 35 years, they've been prominent faces when thinking of Habitat's work. Tell us more about their involvement and what it's meant to the organization itself. There are two widely known myths about Habitat, both that turn out not to be true. So the first is that President Carter started and runs Habitat, which we don't mind, uh, but is actually technically not true. And the second is that we give away houses, and we've already talked about that. But there's no question President and Mrs. Carter put Habitat on the map. So Habitat was founded in 76. The Carters got involved locally when they moved back to Plains after their time in D.C. But the world found out about Habitat in March of 1984 when uh, President and Mrs. Carter got on a bus with a group of volunteers from Americas and Plains and went up to New York City to spend a week sleeping in a church basement and rehabbing a tenement building on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And that was what turned into the inaugural annual Carter Work Project. They've now done that for 35 years, and you can see amazing ripples. So they have directly worked alongside 104,000 volunteers in 14 countries to build or renovate and repair 4,390 homes. So that's if that was all they'd done, that would be a phenomenal thing. But it's been so much more than that, because when I look at the leadership that was raised up each time the Carters would bring the Carter Project to a country, that brought the brand and fundraising and scale of that program to a whole different level. And so they have been such a an incredible face of Habitat. And I think personally, they are such role models for me. Their own servant leadership, I think regardless of one's political perspective, has been so inspiring that I think they have inspired countless numbers of people to get involved, whether in Habitat or other good causes. So they have been, Habitat would have never become what it is without their involvement. And we actually created our, our highest honor, which is our Habitat Humanitarians. And in 2016, they were the inaugural ones, but they have been extraordinary champions. And sadly, COVID got in the way of this year's build. But last year, I think, uh, was such a great example where we were building with a many, many volunteers in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and President Carter actually, uh, very sadly, the morning the build was supposed to start, fell and and uh, and hit his head and we were all panicked. And of course, very much like him, he shows up with a bandage and says, of course I'm building and builds all week long. And and I think that generated yeah. even more press for, for Habitat. So he didn't do it on purpose, he told me, but it is, um, 
but it is uh, it's an example, as I joked, that uh, it just shows he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring attention to our cause. And back in 1984, uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter were key factors in my getting to know about Habitat. I think the image, now we take it for granted, but it was so extraordinary for a former president of the United States to be sleeping in a church basement and personally yeah. Yeah. doing construction work. And I think it just caught the sort of the world's imagination because that's not the way world leaders have typically behaved, but such a great example of the way he personally puts his faith into action. And though the pandemic has put the Carter Work Project on hold, I think through 2021, do you have plans at this point to rejuvenate it in 2022? We have hopes, but not plans. As you can imagine, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And so we need enough assurance before we can make any kind of a public commitment. So we certainly hope to bring it back as we hope to bring all of our builds back and all of our volunteers back. But we want to make sure we're, you know, we are on a on a safe path before, because of course our, our our first rule is safety. And so we would never want to do anything that would endanger the communities we serve or certainly our volunteers. And so we hope and pray it will be soon, but we're going to take it step by step. Understood. And the Carters inspired comedian David Letterman and countless others to become dedicated Habitat volunteers. So how does one become a volunteer and what skills are needed? So the, the good news is there are all sorts of ways to volunteer. And the bad news right now is there are fewer opportunities because of COVID to do our traditional volunteering. So in a post-COVID world, you can personally get involved in your local community. If you go to Habitat.org, you can put in your zip code and find your local organization. We also have a program called Global Village where you can go internationally and spend a week building in a community and getting to know and learning about a community in another country, which is a life-changing experience that, that I have done many, many times times with volunteers. And then there are so many other ways. So the good news is you can volunteer now, even in the midst of COVID, you can become an advocate. And we are doing policy work at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. And you can become part of improving housing policy, which is a great way to volunteer. There's still a huge need for skilled volunteers. We have at the local level and national level, we, we need board members, we need fundraisers, we need legal help and finance help. We need people who want to help and counsel and support our partner families. So there are a myriad of ways in addition to construction to get involved. And of course, we are very grateful that so many people also get involved through giving. And so we hope um, people won't let COVID stop them from participating, even though, of course, we are very eager to, to get all of our physical volunteering and construction work going again. And it's crucial, isn't it, to convey literally the extent of the volunteer opportunities. Uh, people think of Habitat and the participants right there on the building lot. But there are really so many opportunities, both inside and out, aren't there? Absolutely. You know, we just had one where we had a, one of our corporate partners, we were talking to them and they'd done huge investment in cyber. And they said, oh, we can help you with that. You know, it's, we like everyone else are worried about cyber crime and, and problems. And so that was a great example of skilled volunteering. Their experts did a, a training event with our audit and IT people and finance people. And so that's a tiny example that just happened last week, but but we see those replicated all over where people can bring their professional skills as well as their hearts and their muscles and, uh, and help out. And Habitat has generated such widespread news and publicity with uniformly positive social impact. How have you been able to grow so much and yet maintain the essence of what the Fullers created back in 1976? And uh, in talking with you, Jonathan, that's abundantly clear. 
One of the axioms that I've adopted for, for many, many years and shared is, is we're, we should be religious about our principles, but not our tactics. And I think that's really important. So the core principles we hold very dearly, and we don't want to compromise on those, but we don't want to be closed in. And I think for a long time, there was genius in rolling Habitat out exactly the same way with just one sort of methodology. And I think part of that growth was holding on to the, the frame of our principles, but then being more flexible about how we built, moving, you know, especially a big move towards incremental, some of the moves towards market development. To me, they're all consistent with our vision, our mission, and our principles, but they're very different tactics. And I think that's appropriate as we contextualize the work for the need in different countries and different places. So I think that allowed growth. And to me, it has always been, we are federated and that brings complexity, but it also brings incredible innovation. And so we wanted to create more freedom within a framework of our principles for local country programs and local affiliates in the US to innovate and find ways to help them met the need in their local communities. And then trying to find those best ideas and figure out which ones could be replicated and, and scaled across the world. And I think all of those have helped us move towards this very fast growth. And I'm thrilled we have grown dramatically. But of course, unfortunately, the need for housing has grown uh, dramatically as well. So we are in no way winning yet. Not yet, but definitely on the way. And last year, you released your third book, Our Better Angels, Seven Simple Virtues That Will Change Your Life in the World. It was released before the pandemic engulfed the world, yet these virtues are directly applicable during this time, aren't they? I think they are more applicable than ever. And, you know, this is not a strategy book. I, I, my other book was more for the Habitat family, and it was much more about strategic planning and leadership. This is really about the heart. And it actually, we launched it with President Carter at that Nashville build, and he was kind enough to write the foreword. And it came from an op-ed he wrote for and with us. If you remember Hurricane Harvey, when it just drowned Houston, Texas, and after Harvey hit, in response to seeing the wonderful ways that communities came together to respond to the disaster, President Carter compared that to the world he once knew when you could count on your neighbors and they counted on you. And he wrote, referencing President Lincoln, when the waters rise, so do our better angels. And in a way, that was the beginning of the, the book and his inspiration, certainly my grandmother's and others. But I wanted to really encourage people. And these focus on virtues, and of course, you'd be shocked, are filled with stories of Habitat leaders and volunteers and home buyers who have transformed their own lives, but also transformed their communities. And my hope is when people read it, they will be inspired to reinforce those virtues in their own life, but also then to go out and get involved, whether it's with Habitat or another good cause. The reaction when people read, I hope, is one, they'll be encouraged by it. And two, they will think, I need to go do more in my community. And that's really was the reason we wrote it. So the, the virtues are kindness, community, empowerment, joy, respect, generosity, and service. And I think these are just timeless virtues that we're all hungry for. And I think that they, as I mentioned before, they are examples of people living these out in a way that is this wonderful win-win that their own lives get richer and stronger as they are having an impact, a meaningful impact on others. And it's it's really celebrating these everyday heroes and recognizing that individually we can all make a meaningful difference in our community, but collectively we can really create transformation. And my hope is uh, just as Habitat's example, this will amplify the voice and, and encourage people to go out and become part of building the sort of community we all wanna be a part of. Yeah. And these shared principles for the common good are altogether essential and give inspiration to so many people to give of themselves, don't they? 
They really do. And it's, um, if, if you'll, if I can, if you'll indulge me, I'll tell them what might be my favorite story from the book. I'll, I'll do the very short version. Uh, people can go read the long version, but I have a friend, Boris, who is just one of those human beings that makes the world better. And Boris grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a community called The Hole. You can kind of imagine what a community that was called The Hole was like. And they didn't have indoor plumbing. There was violence. There were gunshots. There were murders. And Boris was one of those children who easily could have been written off. He was struggling in school. He was acting out. And luckily, he was blessed with some mentors who invested in him. And he said everything changed when he was in third grade. His mom qualified to buy a Habitat home. And they moved from the hole to Optimist Park. And I love the imagery of that. And it turned out Boris was actually a very bright young man, but didn't have an environment that was stable and safe, didn't have a place to study and do his homework, didn't have role models. And suddenly all that began to change. And he flourished and he ended up getting a full scholarship to Davidson College, got an MBA, had great mentors along the way, and actually first went into banking and then into helping create more affordable housing. And now he works in senior care and is actually the first person I'm aware of who grew up in a Habitat home to serve on our international board of directors. And I share that just because we celebrate that, that Boris is a success and making the world better. But it's also because there's so many more Boris's out there who, with just a little bit of help or reducing the barriers in their way, could grow into all that God intends for them. And not only will their lives be better, we'll all be better off if we can create those opportunities. And has Boris written about his experiences with Habitat? He has. So um, COVID got in the way of a roadshow, but um, but he has been kind enough to uh, we've got him on video and, and sharing. And, and certainly some of his voice is in the uh, in the story, in the book. But he is just a, a great servant leader and, and wonderful role model. So great to hear. And Jonathan, what's next for Habitat for Humanity over the coming years? What would you ideally like to see happen? You know, I think our strategy is right. And I think the next step is continuing to live into that. So I think we want to go deeper and in a way on three lenses. So how do we continue to build more than ever? Because we have a huge supply gap in the United States. We just aren't building enough houses that are affordable for low and moderate income families. And in some ways, I think housing is now visible in the U.S. in a new way, partly because of COVID, but also because especially on the East and West Coast, it's become so expensive that even middle class families, children can't afford housing. And so suddenly the, the huge invisible problem has become more visible. So we want to continue to draw attention to the great need for it. We want to directly build and engage as many people as we can in it. But we want to also be a strong voice both in the U.S. and around the world for better housing policies, for land rights, for access to finance, for access to better materials, so that we slowly can create conditions so that so many more families, countless more families could upgrade their own housing and hopefully wouldn't need our help. So my, my fervent wish is that we will go out of business because we succeed, but I fear we've got a lot of work to do before that happens. A strong voice with core principles, being flexible, true collaboration, positive social impact. Hmm. On these inspiring notes, listeners can find out more online at Habitat.org and throughout a wide range of social media and publications. Jonathan, all the best to you and the entire Habitat team with your vital work that's really impacted and inspired so many people, families, and communities. Thank you so much, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate your, uh, your giving us the platform. Thank you for joining us today. 
Our library of interviews and a range of further resources are available at our website, innovatepodcast.org. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and by Arch Street Press. For PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, this has been Innovate.